Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, November 3rd, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, fingers crossed, the flu season might not be so bad this year. From the Wall Street Journal. And when daylight saving ends, don't be surprised if you feel these health impacts from CNN Health. Plus, five ways to boost your immune system from MD Live. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. Fingers crossed, flu season might not be so bad this year. Cases are ticking up in parts of the country. Here's what to expect by Sumati Reddy from the Wall Street Journal. There's some good news about the flu season this year. Doctors and scientists don't expect the worst. The flu season in the southern hemisphere, where the cold weather illness period wraps up as we head into ours, often serves as a harbinger of what's to come for us. There, cases picked up a little earlier than usual in some countries, but didn't result in an especially large number of hospitalizations and deaths, say public health experts and doctors. Also encouraging news, the components in this year's flu vaccine are a good match to the predominant strain so far. One study found that the current version of the flu vaccine reduced the risk for flu-related hospitalizations by 52 percent in the Southern Hemisphere, a pretty strong indicator of effectiveness, says Alicia Budd, head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's domestic influenza surveillance team. It's possible to predict the overall outlook for respiratory illnesses this winter, but a mild flu season would be a welcome breather after last year's triple-demic of flu, COVID-19, and RSV hit hard. Many employers are less forgiving about working from home, taking away some flexibility that workers had when they got sick or their family members got sick. And families are preparing to gather for Thanksgiving and other holidays soon. The flu vaccine protects against four varieties of the flu, two of which are known as type A viruses and two type B viruses. Type A viruses typically produce more serious illness, particularly one known as H3N2, but type B viruses can hit children hard. The predominant strain in the Southern Hemisphere this year was a type A virus known as H1N1. Some countries, like South Africa, also had significant levels of H3N2. When to get your flu shot. The CDC recommends that people six months and older get vaccinated for flu. The agency recommends the majority of people who need only one dose being inoculated by the end of October, but it's still helpful to get the flu vaccine as long as influenza is circulating, which can continue into the spring. When you get the flu shot, it takes your body a week or two to develop enough antibodies to protect you, says Rick Zimmerman, a professor of family medicine and flu epidemiology at the University of Pittsburgh. Your antibody levels peak three to four weeks after receiving the vaccine and then start to go down. But doctors say you are still protected for four to six months. Early on, your antibody levels are high enough that you may be protected from a nose infection as well as a chest or lung infection. Several months later, when your antibody levels start declining, you're not as protected above the throat, 
but should still have enough antibodies to protect your chest. So you likely have protection for your lungs, which will keep you out of the hospital and keep you from getting really sick, says Zimmerman. The vaccine may not prevent nose colds, but it prevents a lot of hospitalizations and deaths due to heart and lung issues, he says. When will flu cases pick up? Now that the summer bump in COVID-19 cases is receding, expect to see flu cases start rising, says Seema Lakdavala, an associate professor of microbiology and immunology at Emory School of Medicine. Peaks of different viruses tend not to overlap, says Lakdavala. Once you recover from one respiratory virus, you're less likely to get infected with a different one for a month or two, she says, because your innate immune response increases the barrier to another infection. COVID has thrown off the normal timing of many viruses' seasonal patterns for the past few years. Lockdown measures suppressed the circulation of other viruses for a while, and then some came back at unusual times as people resumed their normal activities. Last year's flu season was unusually early in the U.S., taking off in October and peaking in late November or early December. So far this year, flu activity remains low, but is starting to pick up a little in some of the southeast and south-central states. While epidemiologists and other scientists look to the Southern Hemisphere to predict what we might see, the U.S. doesn't always follow the same patterns, notes Zimmerman. Sometimes you get a new variant that arises that they did not experience in the Southern Hemisphere, he says. At other times, the main strain circulating in the Southern Hemisphere varies, making predictions for the U.S. difficult. Flu symptoms and what to do. Besides getting the relevant vaccines, Lakdavala recommends wearing a mask if you're in crowded indoor areas like airports and airplanes and staying home if you have flu symptoms, which can include fever, cough, and a runny nose. If you do get sick, and especially if your age or health conditions put you at risk for more serious complications, see a doctor to determine what virus you have. Identifying early whether you have flu or COVID, for instance, can help you get started on an antiviral medication, which can reduce the severity and length of your illness. The sooner you take it, the more effective it will be, says Bud. Up next, when daylight saving ends, don't be surprised if you feel these health impacts by Madeline Holcomb from CNN Health. And this is in question and answer format. When the clock is set back, does your world get turned a little upside down? Daylight saving time will end on Sunday, November 5th, moving the clocks in most U.S. states back an hour. And that is no small thing for our health, according to Dr. Rajkumar Dasgupta, Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine in Los Angeles. He shares what to do for your health during the time change and how to soften the blow. Question from CNN. What kinds of health problems do you anticipate when the time changes? Dr. Rajkumar Dasgupta. Daylight saving time ends soon, and while most of us welcome the extra hour of sleep, for some people the time change literally causes headaches. The end of daylight saving time is typically a trigger for cluster headaches. Cluster headache attacks can occur every day for six to eight weeks and then go away in a cluster cycle. The theory is that you can actually trigger a cycle by switching the time with daylight saving time. 
The connection between the time change and cluster headaches is that the portion of the brain that is also the generator for cluster headaches is also the portion of the brain that manages our circadian rhythms, which is located in the hypothalamus. Also, a lot of migraine sufferers usually will have a little bit of sleep deprivation where their sleep is affected by this change, so they'll see an increase in headache frequency during that period. CNN. Why does daylight saving time have such an impact? Dasgupta. Despite being a seemingly small shift, daylight saving time can significantly impact our circadian rhythm, which regulates our sleep-wake cycle. Sleep is very individualized. Not everyone's going to be equally affected by the change in our circadian rhythm. It's important to realize that it's not just daylight saving time changes that can trigger these attacks. Even changing time zones can trigger cluster headaches. CNN. Should we worry about getting depressed as it gets darker out? Dasgupta. The end of daylight saving time brings about reduced light and shorter fall and winter days, and this change may increase seasonal affective disorder, a type of depression triggered by the changing of the seasons and waning daylight. It's well documented that the time change does not directly cause mental health conditions, but it definitely can really do a number on people with pre-existing conditions. I don't want anyone to feel that they need to suffer or they need to actually live with their mood not going in the right direction. If you notice a shift in your mental health, particularly if it affects your quality of life, always contact a healthcare professional. CNN, are there any populations who should be more mindful of the time change? Dasgupta, Individuals with Alzheimer's and dementia are particularly vulnerable to sleep disturbances, and the disruption caused by daylight saving time can exacerbate their symptoms. These individuals often experience disrupted sleep-wake cycles due to cognitive impairments, leading to irregular sleep patterns and daytime drowsiness. The connection between daylight saving time and sleep disturbances in people with Alzheimer's and dementia is particularly concerning, as sleep plays a vital role in cognitive function and memory consolidation. Sleep disturbances can exacerbate the cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's and dementia, making it even more difficult for individuals to perform daily activities and maintain independence. CNN. What can we do for people who are more vulnerable? Dasgupta, I would say just being aware of these things. Of course, when you have poor quality and quantity sleep, it can predispose you to things like falls, and we never want anyone to fall. Be more cognizant around that time. If you are a primary caregiver or just someone who's visiting a loved one who has Alzheimer's, be aware of these things. CNN. How can we protect ourselves from the impact of the time change? Dasgupta, that's going to be slowly adjusting your schedule, doing things that will maybe help out that transition, getting exercise, spending time outside in the morning, and light therapy can be helpful strategies during the fall and winter. I think it's also very important that people, specifically talking about migraines, it's just unfortunate that this is one of the triggers. Twice a year, have your medications ready. No matter what we're talking about, whether it's your mood or your headache, if you notice that you're getting a worsening headache, it's not stopping. The usual medications are not working. Go to your healthcare professional right away. Up next, give yourself a boost. 
Five Ways to Support Your Immune System from MD Live. Cold and flu season is here. Is your immune system ready? A healthy immune system protects your body from bacteria, viruses, and other pathogens you encounter daily. And while there's no way to prevent illness entirely, keeping your immune system healthy can help protect you. What is your immune system? Several components make up your immune system. White blood cells, bone marrow, the spleen, the lymphatic system, thymus, tonsils, adenoids, and appendix. This system works in unison to circulate white blood cells throughout your blood and lymph nodes, serving as a defense against infection, disease, dead cells, and more. Five tips for boosting your immune system. Number one, eat right. Fruits and vegetables provide immune-boosting nutrients like vitamins C and E, beta-carotene, and zinc. Healthy fats found in olive oil, salmon, and chia seeds are anti-inflammatory and may boost your body's immune response to pathogens. Fermented foods like yogurt, raw sauerkraut, and kimchi can help improve your gut biome. 2. Exercise right. Exercise is always good for your immune system and overall health. It improves your cardiovascular health, lowers blood pressure, helps control body weight, and protects against diseases. For boosting your immunity, research shows that moderate-intensity exercise for up to 60 minutes a day gives you maximum immune benefits. A brisk 30-minute walk each day is ideal. Biking, swimming, and hiking are also great options. Number three, get more sleep. You likely don't get enough sleep. Few people do. A lack of sleep can not only make you more susceptible to viruses such as the common cold, but can also make it harder to recover after exercise. To keep your immune system in fighting shape, you should get seven to eight hours of sleep daily. Number four, reduce stress. Some stress is normal. But if you have pressure weighing on you for a prolonged period, you are more vulnerable to illness, infection, and disease. Chronic stress suppresses your immune system. Reducing stress is an excellent way to boost your immune system. Try activities like meditation, exercise, and yoga. Number five, laugh more. Laughing reduces your level of stress hormones and boosts white blood cells to fight infection. In fact, it may be enough just to anticipate a laugh. In one study, subjects were told that they were going to watch a funny video three days later. Their level of stress hormones dropped before ever watching the video. Up next, monitoring prostate cancer versus treating it doesn't raise mortality risk, 15-year study finds. By Matthew Wilson from Nice News. There are about 288,300 new cases of prostate cancer in the United States each year, according to the American Cancer Society, and it's the second most common cancer for men. Roughly one in eight will be diagnosed with it in his lifetime. But it's also among the most survivable cancers. In fact, a recent study found that localized prostate cancer with low or intermediate risk may not even need immediate treatment. According to the study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, patients with prostate cancer who delayed treatment didn't have an increased mortality rate compared to those who sought immediate treatment. 
Men who delayed instead were actively monitored, during which physicians tracked the growth of the cancer over time rather than performing radiotherapy or surgery. In the end, active monitoring produced the same high survival rates as traditional treatment over a 15-year period. It's clear that unlike many other cancers, a diagnosis of prostate cancer should not be a cause for panic or rushed decision-making. Dr. Freddie Hamdi, the lead investigator and a University of Oxford professor, said in a press release, Patients and clinicians can and should take their time to weigh up the benefits and possible harms of different treatments in the knowledge that this will not adversely affect their survival, he said. Funded by the National Institute for Health and Care Research in the U.K., researchers monitored 1,643 men aged 50 to 69 over 15 years in the U.K. All had been diagnosed with localized prostate cancer between 1999 and 2009. The trial examined the long-term efficiency of three different treatment plans, surgery, radiotherapy, and active monitoring, with about a third of the trial participants opting for each treatment. Researchers measured how the participants' cancers progressed based on treatment and tracked mortality rates, cancer progression, and spread, and the impact of treatments on quality of life. Patients from all three groups reported similar overall quality of life in terms of their general mental and physical health, according to the press release. But the negative effects of surgery or radiotherapy on urinary, bowel, and sexual function were found to persist much longer than previously thought, the release said. According to earlier findings, the men who opted for active monitoring had twice the likelihood of their prostate cancer metastasizing by the 10-year mark than those who opted for treatment, though that didn't change the mortality rate five years later. The trial also showed that in some cases, prostate cancer was initially mislabeled as low-risk and later identified as intermediate-risk. Some patients passed away from cancer that was initially labeled as low-risk, highlighting the need for further study. Most men with localized prostate cancer are likely to live for a long time whether or not they receive invasive treatment and whether or not their disease has spread, so a quick decision for treatment is not necessary and could cause harm, Hamdi said. It's also now clear that a small group of men with aggressive disease are unable to benefit from any of the current treatments, however early these are given. We need to both improve our ability to identify these cases and our ability to treat them, he said. Up next, the truth about chest pain, when it's an emergency, when it's not, and the action to take in either case. From Consumer Reports on Health. Chest pain can signal something serious, and it's often an emergency. But discomfort in your chest area can also be a sign of a minor annoyance, That means that when you notice it, you may be uncertain about whom to call or what to do. Experts agree that in the moment, it's key to take the right action without hesitation, erring on the side of caution. Here, the most common causes of chest pain, when to seek help as soon as possible, and when it can wait. Simple or serious. Chest pain is one of the most common reasons people go to an emergency department or doctor's office, says Martha Galati, M.D., a cardiologist and president-elect of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. Discomfort in your chest is sometimes due to gas, 
heartburn, inflammation in your rib cartilage, or anxiety. But it's important to be aware of the serious and even deadly problems that can also cause pain. For instance, the risk of a heart attack, a blockage in any artery that delivers blood and oxygen to your heart, increases with age. An aortic dissection, which is a tear along the vessel that delivers blood to the rest of your body, also causes chest pain. The pain can sometimes be a warning sign of a lung blood clot called a pulmonary embolism, or even a rupture of the esophagus, the tube that connects your throat to your stomach. Each one of these problems is an emergency. What doctors refer to as chest pain is generally centered in the chest area, but can include other sensations and either extend to other areas of your body. The American Heart Association guidelines for diagnosing and treating chest pain lists pain, pressure, tightness, or discomfort in the chest, shoulders, arms, neck, back, upper abdomen, or jaw as potentially serious symptoms. Another sign of a possible emergency is chest discomfort plus fatigue or shortness of breath. Your symptoms can help you determine whether you need help immediately, and there are a few key factors to consider when you're deciding what to do. When to consult your doctor. If you've already been diagnosed with a condition like angina, you may have discomfort that hasn't changed significantly and that your doctor has already assessed. You also may have a chronic problem that's getting worse, but only very gradually. Maybe you've already talked to your doctor about the heartburn you get after eating, but lately you've noticed it's more severe and more frequent. In such cases, you should consult a doctor ASAP, but not necessarily in an emergency room. If it's a symptom you've had in the past and it feels similar and it has already been evaluated, that's when a non-urgent evaluation would be appropriate, says Michael Nana, MD, a cardiologist and an assistant professor at the Yale School of Medicine. When to call 911. Acute chest pain or sudden discomfort you haven't experienced before always warrants emergency care. When in doubt, call 911. Don't research your symptoms online or call your doctor's office when you have such chest pain, Nana says. Your medical provider will probably send you to the emergency department anyway because it's not possible to diagnose a serious problem over the phone. I always suggest the patient be evaluated as soon as possible because there's no way for a patient to be able to differentiate a heart attack from reflux, Nana says. For potentially serious causes, quick treatment can be critical to survival. That's one reason it's best not to drive or get a ride to a hospital if you have acute chest pain. If you call 911, paramedics can begin administering necessary medication in the ambulance, and a team will be ready for you when you arrive at the hospital. If a serious cause is ruled out, Nana says your provider will work with you to manage whatever is causing your chest pain and discuss ways to prevent future problems. Either way, never be embarrassed about a false alarm. Yes, for the majority of people, it will not be cardiac or life-threatening, but we don't want to miss anyone, Galati says. We can joke about it later being reflux or gas, but I would rather you be around to joke about it, she says. Up next, crunching numbers from Parade Magazine. 37%, that's the percentage of respondents to a Parade and Cleveland Clinic survey who ranked their mental health average or low. 
Although more than a third of respondents report struggling with anxiety, stress, and depression, many are realizing the best antidotes are small pockets of relaxation. Nearly half of survey participants improved their mental well-being by prioritizing meditation, breathing techniques, or quick walks throughout the day. Even short 60-second spurts can work wonders. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.